need to make sure your harnesses are fastened and uh, keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times as we are going to roll tonight through uh, quite a bit of challenging and yet to me, fascinating information. We always look for more than information. We look for revelation. And so I pray that this will be revelational to you. I pray that the Spirit will say something to you even beyond what I've got written down and the, the study that, that went into this, that there will be something imparted to you, some truth. But you're gonna have to be open to it. So get ready. Open your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 6. Exodus chapter six, if you are looking at the, at the notes down there below on, on YouTube, you might notice that we're doing Exodus six and seven tonight. Well, we've already gone nine verses into chapter six. So we're gonna pick up where we left off and, and just continue on. Exodus chapter six, verse 10. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of this land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am unskilled in speech. Now, remember that we saw in verse 9, the children of Israel suffered from what Moses called kotzer ruach, which is to say shortness of breath. Translated in the New American Standard Bible in verse nine as despondency, they had a shortness of breath, ruach, spirit. Shortness of spirit. That's always when despondency sets in, when we are short of spirit. We get depressed, we don't think clearly. The children of Israel were despondent in their bondage. And as we, again, talked about on Sunday, hopelessness will do that. It causes shortness of spirit. What happens is as people get hopeless and despairing, the spirit gets expended. And then we start to rely on our own wisdom. The soul gets depleted. And you know where we go next? The flesh. The flesh. We get misdirected to the flesh, which can only end in death. Running low on spirit realizing I don't have the wisdom or depth of understanding to handle things, I then deplete the soul and I misdirect to the flesh and I start to do things in the flesh to try to soothe the despondency, to try to help the depression. Things like drugs, alcohol, pleasures, sex, anything that the flesh can do to keep me distracted from the despondency. That's what the flesh wants to do. What do you do when you're short of breath? Hey, if you're there tonight, you wanna breathe again? Romans chapter eight, verse two tells us the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh because the flesh doesn't work so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk, listen, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We need the Spirit of God. When we're sorrowful, when we're despondent, when we're depressed, that's how you breathe. And if you're downcast, 
If you are, as Jesus said, heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Because the spirit of Christ, his spirit restores breath to the heart. That is to my spirit. He refills what is lacking in me. So Paul wrote in Romans 15, 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit given to us, if you are walking in faith in Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, you are promised his Spirit to fill you and indwell you and cause you to abound in hope by his power, the power of the Spirit of God. Now, here's the thing. The children of Israel didn't know that power yet. This was at the time before God poured out his spirit on all flesh. That happened at Pentecost. So we're 1,500 years ahead of that. And the children of Israel as a people did not know the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. He just now as Yahweh is going to present himself to them as present, as immediate. So we're kind of stage one God's gonna be there and be present and they will be aware of him, but still not filling them. And so they're not yet even comprehending what it means to be filled with the spirit. So they're short of the spirit, they're short of breath, they're despondent. And that's where we left off Sunday. But now Moses comes back and, and he says, Lord, I went to them. I told you, I told them all that you told me. Remember what he told them to tell them? Verse six of chapter six. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you for my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. I will bring you to the land. I will give it to you for a possession or an inheritance. I am Yahweh. So Moses took that message, went to the people and laid it out. And they were like, we can't even hear that, Moses. I don't even know what you're talking about. All I know is I've got more bricks to make without straw because of you. They're despondent. Moses turns around to the Lord and says, you want me to go and tell Pharaoh to let the sons of Israel go when the sons of Israel themselves won't even listen to me? How can I expect Pharaoh to listen to me? Already tried that one and he didn't listen. And note what Moses says at the end of verse 12, for I am unskilled in Speech. I'm unskilled in speech, Lord. Now, that's a little different than the previous excuse. You might remember back in chapter five, verse 10, he said, I am slow of speech or heavy of speech. I'm slow or heavy of tongue. I got a thick tongue, Lord. <laughs> I'm not a good speaker. And now he says something slightly different. He doesn't say I'm slow of speech. He says, I am uncircumcised of lips. My lips aren't circumcised. The idea is that his lips were obstructed, forgive me, but obstructed by the foreskin of his failure. This is in the way. It's graphic, I get it, but this describes what his speech impediment is. It's not stuttering, it's not stammering, it's not an inability to speak well, it's an inability to be effective with words to persuade Pharaoh to let the people go. I've used words, it doesn't work. Something's in the way here. 
I love that Yahweh refuses to accept a defect for an answer. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a charge to the sons of Israel and to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. God doesn't even address the uncircumcision of lips. Doesn't even speak to Moses' final excuse here. Doesn't even say a word about it. He just says, dude, go. Okay, he didn't say dude, I added that, but he just says, go. Why is that? Because God is never short of spirit. God is never despondent, never out of breath. You know, the Lord is never hopeless. He's never dissuaded from his will and his purposes. He remains steadfast. He remains true to his promises. We go all over the place. Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone to his own way. He is steadfast. He sets his purpose. He is solid in it. He sees it through. Isaiah 46, verse 10, he said, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So Moses, go. But, 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 go. Yeah, but, but, go. Because I'm gonna do this. That's always the invitation of God. I'm gonna do this. Do you wanna come along? This is gonna happen. Do you wanna be part of it? You don't have to be. You can sit back and watch it pass you by. You can let others enjoy the activity of the Spirit of God. Or you can jump on the roller coaster and get ready to ride. God invites us to be a part of what he's doing. And he is about now to take matters into his own mighty hands. To, as he said, redeem Israel with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. But, but first, something interesting happens here in Exodus 6. It's, it's as if Moses puts a bookmark in the narrative. Verse 14, he says, oh, these are the heads of the father's households. Uh-oh, that sounds like we're getting into a genealogy. The sons of Reuben. Israel's firstborn, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. The sons of Shimon, Yemuel and Yamin and Ohad and Yakin and Zohar and Shaul, son of a Canaanite woman. Well, that's probably not good. These are the families of Shimon. Verse 16. And these are the names of the sons of Levi. Are we gonna go through all 12 sons? Watch this. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon and Kohat and Merari, and the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimei according to their families, sons of Kohat, Amram and Itzhar and Hevron and Uziel, the length of Kohat's life was 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mahli and Mushi. How'd you like the name Mushi? <laughs> wasn't he any one of the characters in uh, Milan no that's Mushu sorry so Mushu but this is Mushi and these are the families of the Levites according to their generations now wait a minute hold it what's a genealogy doing here God's told Moses to go and he pauses to insert this list of names and by the way note he only lists Reuben, Shimon, and Levi, and then he gets into Levi's family, and that's it. He's not gonna list any of the other 12 tribes or 12 sons of Israel. What, what's he doing here? 
Notice that while he begins with Reuben and Shimon, he lands on Levi. It's, that, that's kind of, it's like he's getting a running start. And even tracing back, there's a continuance now back to the patriarchs with Reuben, Shimon, Levi. But now he changes direction and stays with the family of Levi, specifically, intentionally. Levi and his sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And you will hear a lot about the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merariites, and the Merarites. (laughs) They will come up many times as we go through Torah from here on out. This is the first indication and introduction of the Levitical priesthood or of the Levites as as anything significant. Now, they won't be made significant until they get to Mount Horeb, until the whole golden calf incident, and that's a story we'll have to wait to get to. But beforehand, as Moses is writing this down, he knows, he knows what's coming because he's already experienced it. So he's writing this as it were like a history. So he's referring to now introducing the significance of the tribe of Levi and the sons of Levi Why is it right here? Among other things, and you could study it out if you want to get into it further, but it's what I would call a hopeful continuance. It is a hopeful continuance. Now, stuck in Egypt, the great history of the patriarchs behind them, but we are going to move forward, and we can look back, and we know we've got roots to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Reuben, Shimon, Levi, and all the other sons, but now we're moving forward, and there's a hopefulness going forward, because what are the Levites going to be involved with? Sacrifice, atonement, hope. So there's a hopeful moving forward, in establishing this, and also he's establishing Moses and Aaron's Levitical lineage. Before he goes any further with these two brothers, he he establishes what's significant about them, that they are at the very headwaters of the high priestly line of the tribe of Levi. And watch this, verse 20. Amram married his father's sister, Yochaved, and she bore him, Aaron and Moses, Aaron and Moses, note the order, Aaron and Moses, and the length of Amram's life was 137 years. Now, you know we know nothing about Amram. We know a little bit more about Moses' mother, Yochaved, because we watched how she put Moses in the basket, and we know that she set him afloat in the Nile, at least among the reeds, and and sent his sister to watch over him. We know that she would nurse him and and care for them. All we know about Amram is that he is Moses' father. And one more thing that is so significant we cannot skip over it. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 6. Exodus chapter three, verse six. And as God appears there to Moses, the angel Yahweh appears to Moses in the fire in the midst of that bush. He said also, Exodus three, six, I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Note that Amram's God was God. Amram's God was not one of the 80-plus gods of Egypt. We'll get into that. Not one of those false gods, not an idolatrous god, not an old Canaanite god. Amram's god was El Shaddai, Moses' father's god. And he was faithful 
to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or God would not have said, I'm the God of your father, Moses, Amram. So that's all we know about him. But wow, that is highly significant. There is fatherly influence here and motherly influence from Yochaved, no question. But Amram was a follower of El Shaddai, of Yahweh, even before named such. And you can, you can come to Christ. Listen, you can come to Christ whether or not your parents believe. Many people do. Many people are not raised following Jesus, hearing about Jesus, going to church, and, and they come to faith in Jesus because he wants everybody to come to faith in him. But parental influence is incredibly strong. Even in this rebellious time, people can try to undermine the influence and the work of parents, like the recent sex ed bill trying to work its way into Washington schools. They can try to undermine the work of of the parents and the influence, but moms, dads, do not miss that you are highly influential with your children. What you do, what you say, they hear it all. They hear your prayers and they hear your grumblings. They see you in God's word and they see you reading that other stuff. They are fully aware of what you're watching, what you're engaging in, your attitude, your sensibilities, the things that you think you're just talking about in the kitchen when they're in the other room, they hear you. And they are influenced strongly by you. Kids are always aware of the God or the gods of their parents. We're gonna see that in Egypt. By the way, note also, as back in chapter six, we're going through this listing, that it says that Yochaved bore Amram, Aaron, and Moses, and I just wanna quickly point out, Moses was second born. He's not the firstborn son. And so we have yet another biblical instance of the second coming into prominence over and above the first. This pattern we have seen already multiple times and we will see it again. Chapter six, verse 21, the sons of Ishar, Korah and Nepheg and Zikri. Now, Korah is gonna lead a rebellion. This is a, a Levite of the tribe of Levi. And even after they are established as a priesthood, he's gonna lead a massive rebellion against Moses and subsequently against the Lord. Man, be careful when you grumble against those God has set in leadership before you, not because they deserve it, not because they earn it, but because God has determined it. And we will deal with Korah, Numbers chapter 16, that'll come up. And then verse 22, the sons of Uziel, Mishael and Elsaphan and Zithri. Verse 23, Aaron married Elisheba and the daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nachshon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu. These two sons of Aaron, we'll see in Leviticus chapter 10, are gonna be fired from the priesthood, literally. Eliezer is gonna pick it up from there in the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood following the line of Aaron within the Levites. And then there's Ithamar, another son. Verse 24 says, the sons of Korah. Now I love this. The sons of Korah. Numbers 16 tells us Korah leads a rebellion. 
But here's the caveat, the sons of Korah who will come up, Numbers 26, we find out they don't die in that rebellion. You know what they do? They go on to be worship leaders. Worship leaders in Israel. They write some of the more precious Psalms and they will lead the praise to the Father. And then in verse 24, continuing, Asir and Elkanah and Abiasath, and these are the families of the Korahites, Verse 25, Aaron's son Eliezer married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. Phineas is awesome. Numbers 25, we will get to his story, the story of how Phineas stands up for the Lord when nobody else will, and because of that, God makes a specific, unconditional covenant with Phineas for an everlasting part in the priesthood. It's amazing. That's Numbers 25. And so several of these that Moses mentions here are important later, and we will see their names come back up. But these are the heads of the fathers' households of the Levites according to their families. And then verse 26, it was Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their hosts. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was Moses and Aaron. So now we're back to the bookmark. We've got that little genealogy that's highly significant as a hopeful continuance, but now we come back to where Moses bookmarked us and the narrative continues, verse 28. Now, It came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. That the Lord spoke to Moses, that is Yahweh, saying, I am Yahweh. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I speak to you. But Moses said before the Lord, before Yahweh, behold, I'm unskilled in speech. There it is again, I have uncircumcised lips. How then will Pharaoh Listen to me. How's this gonna work, Lord? Verse one of chapter seven. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I make you God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now that doesn't mean Moses is divine. Doesn't mean suddenly Moses has a a higher mansion in the celestial plane. It simply means that now Moses is gonna be the direct mouthpiece from God speaking to Aaron, and Aaron, because he's not uncircumcised of lips, Aaron is gonna speak to Pharaoh for him. God takes away the excuse. I'll just set this up, it's fine. You deal with me, Aaron will deal with Pharaoh. We got it covered, and he says in verse two, and note this, you shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. You shall speak all I command you. And there was another prophet who came on the scene who said the exact same thing. More than a prophet. Jesus Christ in John chapter 12 verse 49 said, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. I speak to you, Jesus says, the word of God. And of course, you know Jesus 
was the word of God, the incarnate word of God, speaking the words of God and declaring the truth of God. And it reminds me yet again that truly the only wisdom worth hearing and heeding is the word spoke by God. I've told you, I struggle sometimes with my opinions. My opinions have gotten me into trouble many times over the years, even in preaching. I'll side note and I'll get political where I probably shouldn't or, or I'll spout off something that is just my own assumption and it never goes well. And more and more what I have seen over the years is when I just speak the word of God, he works, he moves, he accomplishes everything that he desires to. And it's so freeing as a pastor, I just speak the words of God. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, just speak the words of God. If you don't know what to say, speak the words of God. And even sometimes when you think you got some brilliant thing to say, double check that it aligns with the word of God. <laughs> speak his words. Speak what he commands you. I mean, Jesus was so specific to say, I only speak the things that the Father has commanded. Which means that sentence God told him to speak. I speak in absolute alignment and in tune with God and with his word. And God says, Moses, that's the deal. I'm gonna tell you, you tell Aaron, Aaron will tell Pharaoh, and that's how this is gonna work. That's how he's gonna let my people go. Chapter seven, verse three. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Oh, man. This is a tough one. This has been debated by scholars and lay people ever since we began to read it. Wait, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's not fair. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, listen, because there are several reasons for this. Some we're not gonna pick up until we get further into the story. But here we learn that this hardening is not just about Israel's freedom. No, God doesn't say, I will harden Pharaoh's heart to set the people free. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Hey, God's purpose is greater than their deliverance. And the same is true for you and me. God's will is grander than our salvation. We've spoken about this before. What God is doing in us and through us and in the church in this age and in this world is far bigger than simply the salvation of man. And that's huge. I mean, the salvation of people who give their lives over to Jesus. We can't even at this point comprehend the multiplied millions. You can read about them in Revelation. You can see the throngs around the throne and realize that's us. We'll be there. And we will be blown away. Man, this is not a Trump rally we're talking about. These are massive throngs of, of the saved around the throne. And it's, it's, again, we can't even imagine what it's gonna be like. And that is not the full purpose of God. It's part of it. It's part of what he's doing. But his will is greater than that. And I've shared this verse with you before. It's one of my favorites because it's just so astounding. Ephesians chapter three, verse 10, Paul is saying, to me it has been given to speak the mystery of the administration of what God's doing, of grace in Christ Jesus. 
to speak the gospel to the Gentiles. Why, Paul? So that, listen, Ephesians 3.10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, not to the church, through the church, to who? To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenlies. What? So in addition to his gospel work being our salvation, it's also training camp for the principalities and rulers and spirits in the heavenly places. That they are learning about grace through you, through me, through the church, through what God has done by the gospel of his grace. This is so much bigger than we thought it was. And it's even bigger than that because ultimately the goal is always the revelation of the glory of God. The awesomeness of who he is and and the declaration and the proclamation so that people can look whether on earth or under the earth or in the heavens and declare Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father to say, this is who he is, praise the Lord. And that glory, it's not just for his sake. It's not just because God's got a big ego and needs that ego to be fed, so glorify me, worship me. No, that's human thinking. God knows that when we come to comprehend and worship him for all his glory, it affects us. It's what we need. It feeds us, it fills us, it strengthens us, it encourages us. When I look to the glory of God, the awesome power of God, and I begin to trust in his name to accomplish everything, man, I become free to raise my hands and ride the roller coaster up the hill and down through the loops. Whatever, wherever, however he's gonna take me, go for it, Lord, because I trust you. His glory is air to us, it's breath, it's spirit to us. And he knows we need to know him and to know his glory. So everything that he's doing, whether it's training the the principalities and rulers in the heavens, whether it's encouraging the church or reaching out to the lost, it is all for the glory of God, including what he's about to do now in the land of Egypt that they may know, that they may see as he multiplies his signs and his wonders, that they may know his glory. Verse four, when Pharaoh does not listen to you, the Lord continues to say to Moses, then I will lay my hand on Egypt. Remember that big hand we talked about on Sunday that stretched out the universe? Now God's saying, gonna lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Verse six, so Moses and Aaron did. As the Lord commanded them, Thus they did. Verse seven, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. These guys could run for the presidency in America this year. (laughs) 80 and 83. But get this. The only thing that changed from Moses' excuses now to the beginning of Moses' 
ministry, the only thing tangibly that we can see is obedience. Now he obeys. Now, intangibly, we can say faith because faith is expressed in what we do. As James said, faith without works is dead. And so there is a work of faith. When faith comes into the heart, we act on it, we work on it. I love that because he's still the same old Moses. You know, God did not fix his speech impediment. God did not make him more clever. God did not bestow upon him all kinds of gifts and powers and wonders that that he could suddenly be doing as the deliverer. He's still Moses. He's just Moses. But he's obeying. I love verse six. So Moses and Aaron did. As Yahweh commanded them, thus they did. They acted on it. And they may still have struggled at some level with faith, with belief, but as Yahweh commanded them, thus they did. And Jesus says to you and to me right here, right now, tonight, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. If you love me, as I say, you will do. Why? because the commandments are his. I'm either gonna keep him because I love him or I'm gonna reject him because I love something or someone else more than him. That, it's, it's that cut and dried, my friends. You love him, you'll keep his commandments. If you're not keeping his commandments, if you're rejecting his commandments, it's because you do not love him, at least not as much as you love yourself or someone else that you know. It is love of Jesus that causes us to keep his commandments because they're his. Ah, Jesus said it. Therefore, we do it. Jesus commanded it. Oh, I wanna do it. Jesus offered it. Therefore, I receive it. As he speaks, so we do. Now, we're about to get into the plagues. So let's lay some groundwork. And if you've got a pad of paper nearby and a pen, you might wanna jot some of this down because it's instructional before we get into some of, the, some of the wonders that God's gonna pour out on the land of Egypt. I'm sure you've heard about the 10 plagues before and maybe there are certain ones that you can even pick out and we'll, we'll look at at least one of them tonight. But I want you to note a few things as we get into them. Number one, the plagues begin with an alarming sign, although it's not included as one of the 10 plagues of Egypt. So with this alarming sign, you could say there were 11 things that that happened that were set before Pharaoh. The alarming sign is the staff will be turned to a serpent, and we'll see that. But then these same 10 plagues, they end with a devastating judgment. So the alarm goes off. Here's the warning. It doesn't affect anyone, any people, not even Pharaoh himself. No one is hurt when the staff turns into a serpent except for some other staffs, but again, we'll get there. No human being is hurt in the making of that film. But then at the end, the very last sign is the death of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, a devastating wonder or plague or judgment of God. In between the staff and turning into the serpent and back and the death of the firstborn, there are nine plagues. 
the 10th being the death of the firstborn. Okay, right, you're with me? Nine plagues. Get this, that the plagues are divided up into sets of three. Three sets happen, then three sets happen, then three sets happen, and then death of the firstborn. God does this meticulously and methodically. The word plague in the Hebrew, and you'd have to look down in chapter eight, verse two, to see it the first time it's used. Plague is nogep, and it means strike or smite or a serious blow. Because each one of the 10 plagues are a smackdown of one or more of, as I said earlier, 80 plus gods in Egypt. God is displaying his wonders throughout the land of Egypt and he has taken down their major gods. He is humbling them. He is showing the ridiculousness of these idols and that they are powerless against Yahweh, the only true God. I said the plagues come these strikes, these blows, they come in sets of three. So the first three are blood, chapter seven, verses 14 through 28, and then frogs, chapter eight, one through 15, and then lice, chapter eight, verses 16 through 32. And then the second set, flies, chapter eight, verses 20 through 32, pestilence, and this is all in your Bible, chapter nine, verses one through seven, and boils, Chapter nine, verses eight through 12. Then the third set, hail, chapter nine, verse 13 through 35. Locusts, chapter 10, verses one through 20. And finally, darkness over the whole land, chapter 10, verses 21 through 29. And then we'll get to the death of the firstborn. But these middle nine, if you will, go three, three, and three. We're gonna note that in each set of three, two plagues are announced, and the third plague is a blow without warning. God will warn with blood. He will warn with frogs, and then lice are gonna come. He warns with flies. He warns with pestilence, and then boils break out on the people. He warns with hail, and he warns with locusts, and then a deep darkness falls over the whole land. So two warnings and a strike. Two warnings and a strike. Two warnings and a strike. Something else to note. The first three plagues, that is blood, frogs, and lice, impact all the land of Egypt, including, note this, including Goshen, where the Israelites are. The last seven plagues, so the last two sets of three each and then the death of the firstborn, Goshen is untouched. Now, that's interesting. Why? Why would God allow his people to experience the blood, Nile River turned to blood, the frogs everywhere, lice or, or gnats, but we think it's probably lice. Why would God allow his people to go through these, but then protect them against the rest of the plagues? And I would suggest to you it's a wake-up call to sleepy, despondent Israel. They're not believing suddenly they're gonna start seeing Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh, making proclamation, and some serious work is coming down. And as this takes place, they have a choice. Are we gonna get on the Lord's side or not? So it's a wake-up call to Israel. And by the way, that's very similar to the first half of the coming tribulation. 
three and a half years of a wake-up call to all Israel, and as Paul writes, so all Israel will be saved. Hold that thought, I'll come back to it in a minute. Also, in the first three plagues, you'll notice that Aaron's staff is used for each one. In the middle three, no staff is mentioned at all, and in the final three, it's the staff of Moses. What does that tell us? It tells us that Moses' confidence in the Lord is settling and he's now in it for the long haul. That there is a maturing of Moses as he comes into his position, his called position by God of deliverer. At first it's Aaron's rod and then whose rod's it gonna be? And then it's Moses. And it's his staff, it's his rod, it's his authority because Moses is becoming a man of the word of God. Where he will speak to the people, he won't speak through Aaron, he'll speak direct. A man of God's word, gaining confidence and conviction, even as he speaks the word. And my friends, that's how it works. That's how it works. The more you speak the word of God, the more confident you will be in God. The more you speak out the word of God, the more convicted you are in your life of what's true and righteous and good. Yes, speak the word. Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. He says, Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Why? He says, persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now listen, Paul's not saying, hey, Timothy, if you teach the Bible, you'll get saved. No, Timothy was already saved. He said you will ensure salvation. That is, the more you speak the word, the more your confidence grows in the God of your salvation. The more your trust increases. When people say, I just don't know if I'm saved, my first thought is, are you in the word? Because when you're in the word of God, there's no question as to where salvation comes from, as to how much power he wields to cause your salvation, as to his guarantee and promise. If you're not in God's word, you may start to question. It may get shaky in it, but you wanna ensure your salvation, speak the words of God. And you know, you can do that at home. Don't just read your Bible until you drift off or wonder what paragraph you're in. Read it out loud. When you're reading scripture, read it out loud so that you're reading it, you're speaking it, you're hearing it, it's getting in. You'll see your confidence grow, I guarantee it. The more you speak his word. You see, through all the plagues and as all of this is going on, there is a central message that God is sending to the people of Israel, to Egypt, to the world and even to us today, and I would include the principalities and rulers in the heavenly places, there's a central message going on here. Note it in verse five, I will stretch out my hand on Egypt. Well, he starts, he says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand. They will know that I am Yahweh. That's the message. Chapter seven, verse 17, that's the message. Chapter eight, verse 10, nine verse, or eight, verse 22, nine, verse 16, and 10, verse two. And you can look those up or just trust me, we'll we'll come to them. But over and over and over, God says, I'm doing this so you will know who I am, so that you will know Yahweh. 
the central message is God himself. And again, we see that God's purpose is greater than Israel's deliverance and his will is grander than our salvation. What God does here in these wonders and signs, it's bigger than Egypt. Yes, he's doing them to deliver the Israelites. Yes, yes, he's doing them to demolish their fabricated gods. But there's even another thing, and truly all this for his glory, but there's another thing that's going on here that's fascinating to me, and that's that the plagues are a preview of the tribulation. They prefigure the greater judgment to come. Revelation 6 through 19 that we finished just, oh, I guess about a year ago or so. Revelation 6 through 19 describes a seven-year tribulation period yet to come on the world. In fact, Jesus said in Revelation 3.10, the hour of testing which is about to come on the whole world. That has never happened. Since the flood, there has never been a worldwide testing or judgment. And that is coming, and I believe it's coming on us quickly, coming on this world, a seven-year tribulation. You might wanna jot down, I'm gonna throw them at you very quickly as we race down the rails on this roller coaster tonight. Several comparisons or similarities, if you will, between the plagues of Egypt and the tribulation that will come upon the world. Jot these down, note these. Number one, Israel sighs and cries out to the Lord in both. Both begin with a crying out of Israel. Exodus chapter two, verse 23, the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. They cried out and their cry for help was because their bondage, or because of their bondage, it rose up to God. He heard their cry. He even says so several times, I heard their cries. Joel chapter two, verse 17, prophetically speaking of that time of tribulation, says, let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should the, they among the people say, where is their God? And then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. When? When they sigh, when they cry out to the Lord. Both the plagues and the tribulation are preceded by the cries and the size of Israel. Secondly, God in both situations commands deliverance for oppressed Israel. Deliverance from Egypt, deliverance from Pharaoh in the Exodus, and then in the tribulation, deliverance from Antichrist and the global system, a deliverance for his people. Thirdly, God commands Israel's return to the land. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, a verse I've quoted to you many times to prove this point. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who will remain. A second time. He's done it once before when the Jews came back from Babylonian captivity. This is now the second recovering that's being spoken of. They'll come from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and from the islands of the sea. So maybe even some from Whidbey, I don't know. Verse 12, and he will set up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah, note this, from the four corners of the earth. When? In the tribulation. God's gonna do it. 
commanding Israel's return to the land. First time they just come out of Egypt and return to the land. This time they come out of the world and will return to the land. We're already seeing them return in droves. They have been in this generation. And by the way, the end of May, in fact, the month of May marked the largest aliyah that is going up to Israel, return to Israel of Jews in the last decade. A massive return happened in the month of May. In the midst of coronavirus, the children are going home. Fourth comparison. Again, I said, Israel sighs and cries out to the Lord in both situations. God commands deliverance for Israel in both situations. God commands Israel's return to the land, both situations. Number four, God raises up two witnesses in both situations. Fascinating. With the children of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, Moses and Aaron. In the tribulation, you can read about it in Revelation chapter 11, we see two witnesses raised up prophesying from Jerusalem. And they appear in terms of prophetic power as Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. I'm convinced that's who it is. There are others who try and give other ideas of who it might be, but Moses and Elijah are the ones who perform the same miracles that these two witnesses will perform during the tribulation. Same miracles, it's very descriptive. And Moses and Elijah, remember this. Who was it that met Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration prior to his exodus was Moses and Elijah. So God raises up two witnesses, Moses and Aaron here. He raises up two witnesses in the tribulation. Number five in the comparison or the similarities, the plagues or the judgments or the blows on Egypt are stunningly similar to the blows on the world in the tribulation. In Egypt, we see it all begins with a serpent. Staff turned to a serpent. In the tribulation, the old serpent's back at work and he's railing against the saints and against the world. In the Exodus, the river, Nile, as we'll see in just a moment, will turn to blood. Then you go to the tribulation and seas turn to blood. In the Exodus, there's the plague of frogs. In the tribulation, three demonic frogs go out and lure the world to come to Megiddo. In the Exodus, boils. In the tribulation, boils. In both global pestilence, in both hailstones, in both locusts, locusts will descend upon Egypt and destroy it in the Exodus, but then we will see these demon locusts who come ripping up out of the open abyss in Revelation chapter nine but you've got locusts in both situations. You've got deep darkness that will cover the land of Egypt and will cover the world in tribulation. And ultimately you have death. In Egypt, death of the firstborn. In the tribulation, a death of mankind unparalleled in the history of the world. What I'm telling you is that the plagues are previews. The plagues that we're about to go through are precursors of that which Jesus said is about to come upon the whole world. In both cases, two more and we're gonna move on. In both cases, that is the plagues and the judgment of tribulation, judgment hardens the heart. We will see Pharaoh's heart hardened in the tribulation. Revelation 9 verse 20 says, the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of 
of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their immorality or of their thefts. No repentance, hardened hearts we see in both situations. And finally, and I'm sure you can make far more parallels yourself. You might wanna think it through. Finally, number seven, in both cases, Israel is delivered. Deliverance happens. Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's always God's work always his desire to go after the sin that's in the heart, that the heart might be healed. And he promises that delivery for Israel, and we see it in both. The reason why the Apostle Paul is so confident to write this in Romans 9, 10, and 11, man, he just lays out God's plan for Israel with full confidence. Why? Because Paul, as a Jew himself, knew what we're learning. God keeps his word. He says it, and he does it. He always follows through. He said, back in chapter six, verse six, I am the Lord, I will bring you out. I will deliver you, I will redeem you. I will take you for my people, I will be your God. I am the Lord, I will bring you to the land, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord, God keeps his word. And note this, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse seven, just listen. Moses at this point is prophesying and says, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And the Lord your God, note this, will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. A prophecy of what God is going to do in the tribulation. If we learn anything from the Exodus, may we learn and understand the seriousness of God's judgments he doesn't play around with this. But, but listen, Luke 21, 28, when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, your redemption is drawing near. Well, verse eight, chapter seven. So there are the comparisons for you. Verse eight, now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, work a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh so that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded and Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. But note this, it's curious. The word translated serpent in verse nine is tanim, tanin. Actually, if you're gonna write it down, T-A-N-N-I-N, tanin, and it's a generic Hebrew word for typically a larger reptile than a snake. Now, it, it could be 
a class of the reptilian, you know, phyla. But it's typically larger, a bigger reptile, tanin. It's not translated serpent anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, everywhere else that you see the word serpent, you don't see tanin. What you see is nachash, nachash, and that means snake. That's a serpent crawling on its belly, the nachash. So you see that serpent anywhere else, it's definitely a snake. But here he says tanin, and some think he's talking about a crocodile. That would be something. He dropped his staff and it turned into a crocodile. And some have suggested that's what's going on, that the staff of Aaron became a crocodile. And I kind of thought, oh, that's fascinating. I wonder if that's possible. Well, if you note down in verse 15, when it comes to the next plague, he says, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. But you know what? Here the word is nachash. So we know that the staff was turned into a snake, which tells us that the word tanin was simply speaking of the snake as a reptile or among the reptiles. But why? Why that word? The Bible's never specific without reason. God always uses words intentionally. So why is tanin here that throw down your staff so it may become a tanin before Pharaoh? Note this, that it's probably a reference to something demonic that is driving Pharaoh. That's just my take on it. But he calls it a tanin rather than simply a nachash because there's something else there, perhaps some kind of monstrous demonic presence that is driving the mind of Pharaoh. What makes you say that? Ezekiel chapter 29, verse two, speaking about the Pharaoh at that time. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers that has said, my Nile is mine and I myself have made it. And the phrase great monster in Ezekiel 29 is tanin, the great reptile. Some think, well, that's just a reference to Pharaoh himself, but there's something in the wording that indicates it may be a demonic power behind him. And by using the generic reptile term tanin before Pharaoh, right here, you know what God's doing? He's challenging more than one God. Not limiting it just to a serpentine God, but he's challenging at least two. Interesting, there are two gods, Egyptian gods that were worshiped. One was Sebek. Sebek is, you've seen the picture, it's, it's a man with a crocodile head. That was a god of Egypt. And Pharaoh was supposedly the incarnation of Sebek, the crocodile-headed god, hence the use of the word Tanin, the great monster or the bigger reptile. There's another Egyptian god that, that the Lord is challenging here with the staff becoming a serpent, and that's Apep, A-P-E-P, which is a giant serpent, and to the Egyptians, the perpetual arch enemy of the sun god, Ra. And in fact, every morning they believed that the serpent Apep fought Ra for the rising of the sun, fought against Ra to keep the sun from, from rising in the sky because Ra is the sun god. 
And Apep is a serpent, and Sebek is a man with a crocodile's head. We're gonna see later how God turns the lights off on Ra, but, but by turning the staff into a tanin, God here delivers the first blow to the gods of Egypt. Verse 11, then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents, nahash, snakes. Interesting. As this thing starts to happen, we go, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought it was really cool that Aaron's staff turned into a serpent, but now the magicians did that. Yeah, that was a common trick. Note this. Sarna says that to this day, Egyptian snake charmers practice the deception of turning a serpent into a rod. They are able to induce a catatonic rigidity in the native cobra by exerting strong pressure on a nerve just below his head. And in this state, the snake literally assumes a rod-like appearance and can even be handled by onlookers. It's practice today. The jolt that it receives when thrown to the ground restores its snake-like mobility. So they just know where the pressure point is. They just stick the back of the neck and kink, and the snake goes into a rod. No big deal. See, our gods can do what your God can do, and Satan is a great faker. Jesus said, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44. Paul says, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his, serpents, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. It's all fake. God comes along and works a miracle. You see, the staff of Aaron turned into a snake, became a snake, and then back into a rod. Their rods, so-called, were already snakes that became rod-like and then became snakes again. Aaron's rod was just a rod. There was a literal, actual miracle of God, but Satan comes along and goes, oh, I, I, I can mimic that. I can counterfeit that. I can do something kind of like that. And in the tribulation, Antichrist will do the same thing. He will be a miracle mimic. Revelation 13, three says, the whole earth is amazed and follows after the beast. They worship the dragon because he gives the authority of the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Wow, look at what he can do. And my friends, just because something appears miraculous, just because something seems supernatural does not mean it's from God. It's possible that these magicians of Egypt were tapping into some dark demonic power as well. By the way, two of these magicians, we know their names. They are named in several extra biblical sources. If you wanna email me, I'll tell you what those sources are. You can look them up if you're fascinated by that kind of thing. But most compellingly, the Apostle Paul names them in 2 Timothy chapter three as examples of satanic deception in the last days. Listen to this, 2 Timothy chapter three, verse one. Realize this, 
in the last days, difficult times will come. Well, <laughs> welcome to the last days. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter the, into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse eight, listen, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith but they will not make further progress. Their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus's and Jambres's folly was also. Now you follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Janus and Jambres, all the way back then, an example of the kind of falsehood that we see today. False prophets, false messiahs, false wonders being played out on the world. Some will even now compare the wonders of these plagues of God to magic tricks. They'll say, well, David Copperfield can do stuff like that. David Blaine, man, he can, he can levitate, right? It's all tricks. God doesn't do tricks. God's not playing magic tricks or sleight of hand. God is changing a staff into a literal living, breathing snake and back to an actual staff. And note that at the end of verse 12, it says, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. I love it. Gone. Gone, gone. <laughs> Gulps them down. And it reminds me that truth always swallows up lies. That righteousness will consume wickedness. Justice is gonna devour lawlessness. You trust the Lord. His staff, his rod, will comfort you, but it will shatter the nations. Verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. See, that's what happens. When the heart is hard, you can't hear the Lord. When the heart is hardened, you will not listen, either to words of prayer, the teaching of his word, you won't be cracking open the scriptures. You will be out of tune, unable to hear the Lord when the heart is hard. This word harden is hazak. And hazak, figuratively, the word means to twist as a rope. So the heart gets twisted. Now hang with me a little longer here because I gotta address this. This idea of God hardening a heart, does that bother you? Is that right, Lord, that you should harden even Pharaoh's heart, even the heart of a sinner, that you're gonna harden their heart? I don't know if, if that's fair. I want you to understand, Pharaoh's heart hardens 12 times between chapters seven and 14. We will note specifically his heart is being hardened. But get this, the first six times it's all on Pharaoh. The first six of the 12 times, Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart. 
Now, God warns ahead of time, he's gonna harden Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh's the one who does it. The first six out of 12 times, the Bible doesn't say the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart until the seventh time. But then you know what? On the eighth time, Pharaoh hardens his own heart again. And then God finally comes along and hardens Pharaoh's heart himself the ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th time. Note what's going on there. Psalm 7, verse 9 says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and the minds. Pharaoh had every opportunity not to harden his heart, but chose to the first six times. Then God does. Pharaoh sees what it's like to have his heart hardened, and the eighth time he hardens again. And then God does the rest. Why? The Lord will confirm the desire of the heart. And here the Lord is just confirming this is what Pharaoh wants, then this is what Pharaoh's gonna have. You could say he's honoring Pharaoh's heart of rebellion. You want a hard heart? I'll help you harden it. And in the tribulation, God's gonna do the same thing in this world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And that's the deal. They don't want the truth. So God says, okay, if you want what's false, I'll help you trust what's false. I'll delude. If you want to be deluded, I will delude you. Now, only God can do that because only God really knows the heart. It's not my place or anyone else is to try to impose delusion on somebody. But God comes along and says, as he did with Pharaoh, you have the choice here, Pharaoh, to do as I ask. Time after time after time, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Finally, God says, okay, I'll harden it for you because you've already set your feet in the way that you would go. Verse 14. Now, I wanna do one plague here, the first plague, and, and, and we'll finish tonight, but... Walk this through with me, watch this. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. Pharaoh would do this every morning, by the way. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent, a nachash. You shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says Yahweh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their streams, their pools, over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So even in their containers, blood will take the place of the water. And so Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded. And he lifted up the staff And he struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile turned to blood. Can you even imagine that? The Nile is huge. This is a massive river. 
And you know, I don't know if it's like the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston that, that it looked like Kool-Aid spreading out, you know, slowly spreading out over the river like that. Or if he struck it and boom, instantaneously the whole thing, blood. I suspect it was more like that. Instantaneously from top to bottom, this moving river of absolute stinking dead blood. Verse 21, the fish that were in the Nile died and the Nile became foul so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile and the blood was through all the land of Egypt. Talk about the Nile Delta, which was this fruitful, well-watered land, blood everywhere. Thick, dense blood. Everywhere you turn. Man, the Nile was the life of Egypt. The sustenance, it's how the people survived. It's, they loved the Nile. And as I told you, Pharaoh went down there every morning to worship the Nile and its God. The Nile God's name, this cracks me up, Happy. I kid you not, H-A-P-I, Happy is the Nile God's name. An androgynous figure with drooping belly and breasts. Gross. Wearing a ceremonial beard and a loincloth, they called Happy Lord of the fish and birds of the marshes or Lord of the river bringing vegetation, but I can tell you he wasn't very happy on this day. In the tribulation, Revelation chapter eight tells us with the second trumpet judgment that one third of the sea will become blood. Revelation 16 tells us in the second bowl judgment, all the sea and all the rivers and freshwater springs of the earth will be turned to blood. This is just a preview of coming attractions. Why blood? God will say through Moses, Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. God, when he created, think about this, when he created us and, and living beings and put blood in our veins, he knew what he was doing. Giving us this remarkable graphic picture of life that without the blood, we don't live. When the blood goes bad, we die. Blood everywhere, but this is not living blood. This is dead blood. When blood comes out of the body, it's no good for anything. It stinks and it's poison and it's deadly and it carries whatever disease was in it. And this blood covers all now of Egypt. It will cover the world. This is dead blood. That is blood that could only kill. Look at verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts and Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Note this, the Nile was already blood. All the tributaries, blood. Blood was everywhere. So for the magicians to do their trick, they did not turn the Nile to blood. They probably had their little pitchers and someone shook a little Kool-Aid in it. Shake, shake, shake. Look at that. <laughs> we turned it red. Now, I don't know exactly what their little magical trick was that they did, but I got a question for you. Think about this. If they were real magicians, why not turn the blood back to potable, drinkable water? Why, why are they turning water to blood? Think about how stupid this is. I mean, to get water, they're already digging. 
which means that these magicians were digging up groundwater and these idiot magicians were turning it back into undrinkable blood. What does that tell you? You see what's going on? The devil can imitate, but all his imitations can do is make things worse. They don't improve the situation. The magicians here, in trying to give answer, like I said, if they were truly magic, turn the blood to water and save the people. But they just made more blood. And the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the entire game plan of Satan. That's it. Anything else that he tries to deceive you with is a lie. It's steal, kill, and destroy. And verse 25 says, seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Note that, seven days. A subtle reminder of the tribulation which will last seven years. Blood everywhere. Blood on everything. And that blood meant death. In fact, if it were to continue beyond the seven days, death would have reigned over all Egypt. For the blood that is going to affect the world in the tribulation, there will be massive casualties. Dead blood. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus said, though, I came that they may have life and life abundantly. That's the difference. The blood of Christ is life. Jesus said in John 6, 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And again, God created us such that as the blood begins to flow through our veins, it's a graphic picture of his remarkable love. Revelation 1, 5 says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Brothers and sisters, God is never despondent. He's never out of breath. And he never runs short of the blood of Christ, which washes away our sin. Let's pray together. Father, for all of the things we've considered tonight, may you cause to stick that which you need to speak to each of us. Help us, Lord, to remember what you had in mind for us, what you wanted us to hear. And Lord, I ask by the power of your word that you would change us that you would cause us to be as lights in the universe, that you would give us the ability beyond ourselves, beyond our despairs and despondencies and depressions and worries to trust you and be filled again with hope and be those who speak out the word of truth in this dying, desperate world. I thank you for the word you've given us. May it now 